The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. It's time now for our Wall Street Week daily segment. The host of Wall Street Week, David Weston, joins us as he does every day around this time. And David, I'm sure as you know, and there's been a lot of protests on college campuses uh, across this country in the wake of the Israel-Hamas war here. And let's just say there's a big debate going on right now about free speech and about how these universities are dealing with uh, people wanting to voice their opinions. That's certainly true. By the way, having been in college in the 70s, we yeah. had it in the 70s in a very different context. Mm-hmm. But we're seeing it once again now. We're going to bring in somebody who really has a perspective on this. She's Drew Gilpin. Faust. She's the, she was the first female president of Harvard, and she's the author of Necessary Trouble, Growing Up at Mid-Century. So, Dr. Faust, thank you so much for being with us. And at the very beginning, the forward of your book, you say history is about choices. You, of course, are an historian. It's about choices, and a lot of your book is about choices you observed and participated in in the middle of the last century. I wonder if, as an historian, you could compare and contrast what we saw in the middle of the last century, largely having to do with civil rights, with what we're seeing on college campuses today in the context of the Israeli-Hamas conflict. Well, I can try to make some comparisons. Uh, I always think it's dangerous to try to connect too directly between the past in an effort to somehow predict the present. But let me say a few things about what I feel the distinctive characteristics of those demonstrations were in my college era. I'm struck by, first of all, the impact of social media on demonstrations today and on the ability of people to organize, but also the ability of people to target not just groups, but individuals and call them out and uh, put their names up for others to attack. And of course, none of that was available to us in the 1960s. And I should say I was an activist both in civil rights demonstrations, but also in the anti-war movement. I graduated from college in 1960. And my book really traces those years. It traces my life from 1947 to when I turned 21 in 1968 and ends with a consideration of what those demonstrations were like. We could not communicate as rapidly. We could not identify people as rapidly. We could not target people as rapidly or as effectively. And so I think that has led to a very quick escalation and a dramatic escalation in in the ability to um, express oneself, but also to disrupt the lives of others and to um, disrupt the lives of those uh, around us in in the present day. So I'd say that's one distinctive difference. Another thing that strikes me as uh, notable is my generation of college students felt it wanted to distance itself from its parents and from adults. We felt we knew more, we were smarter, we saw a new world dawning that those older than us did not. The attack on regulations in colleges, particularly for women, parietals, they were called, rules, other kinds of controls. These were the uh, what we wanted to oppose. And when we expressed ourselves politically, I think we would have been astonished by the idea of trying to get statements from our own universities about 
um, their views on the issues at hand. That has obviously been a, a huge focus of uh, college students and campuses today because I believe that students are now much closer to their parents, to an older generation, to those who've come before and to the institutions in which they find themselves. And so they want kind of the endorsement and approval of those institutions, and they want those institutions to take a stand. That was quite different right. from my era. For example, we might ask an institution not to right. give the federal government the record of male students' grades because the draft operated in Vietnam at one point on the basis of how well you were doing in college. If you weren't doing well, you were subject to the draft. If you were doing well, you would have a lower likelihood of being drafted. So we would demand things from the institutions of that sort, like do not send in the, the record of grades. But there wasn't that same sense of endorse us uh, that, that is now very much a part of the conflicts that mm -hmm. uh, are are currently underway. I am curious, though. I mean, as an administrator, I mean, we, I mean, and you know this, I mean, just from your time in college, and I think we all know this, that, you know, kids of a certain age, I mean, we say and do things, we're passionate about things here, and universities are so, kind of supposed to be that space that allows folks to have that discourse, obviously in a constructive way, but nevertheless to have that discourse here. So given all the sort of things that you mentioned there, the sort of the modernization uh, of a lot of the issues that have now made it more complicated to have that discourse, how how do university presidents and other administrations, I guess, address that without just basically shutting down discourse altogether? You know, I'm not going to answer that question because I'm not a university president. I have a successor who is undertaking this, and I no way want to position her by coming up with what I think she ought to be doing. I'm not in the middle of all the pressures. I'm not seeing what she's seeing. My day as, at running Harvard is uh, over and has been over since 2018. So I believe that it's important to let those who are uh, responsible and charged with these, with these uh, responsibilities to carry them out independent of, of my um, holding forth about what I might would have might might have done had I still been in office. I will say that when I was president the first number of years, I became president in 2007. And students were pretty quiet for a while. And then with Occupy Wall Street and rising uh, intense feelings about climate change and divestment, the, the student body became much more active and much more engaged. And so we've seen, I believe, a, a, a kind of escalation of student activism, but also student concern about the world. And, and that characterizes the moment we find ourselves in now and is both a challenge to universities, but also represents on the part of students passions that, that are worth considering as the hallmark of an individual who cares about the world in which they find themselves. Dr. Post, I certainly respect you don't want to second guess what's going on at any college campus today. But let me ask a, a related but somewhat different question. That is, how has the job of being a university president changed as you've watched it develop? Because it looks like there are a lot of stakeholders you have to be worried about right now, from the students to the faculty to the administration to, yes, donors and alums. You've got a great word there, stakeholder. There are a lot of people who consider themselves constituents of any university. And for the president, that is obviously a source of, of great um, 
satisfaction that so many people care about universities, but it also means that there are competing voices coming at you all the time with often very different agendas and different perspectives. Those enrich your ability to do your job, but they can also be extremely challenging to reconcile when they're coming from different and sometimes conflicting points of view and, and um, conflicting interests. Dr. Faust, thank you so very much for being here. Really appreciate this. Drew Gilpin Faust, former president of Harvard University. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.